This is Unfiltered, episode 370 for September 28th, 2021. Um, there was an email sent to you from an executive at EcoHealth Alliance, and this is one of the companies that funded some of the research at the Wuhan lab. And this email thanked you uh, for basically saying you believed that the origins of the coronavirus were natural. This email said, quote, I want, wanted to say a personal thank you on behalf of our staff and collaborators for publicly standing up and stating that the scientific evidence supports a natural origin for COVID-19 from bat to human spillover, not a lab release from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. That email was April 18th. Now, there are some of your critics who say this shows you have too cozy of a relationship with the people behind the Wuhan lab research. What do you say to that? Oh, that's nonsense. I don't even see how they get that from that email. Hello, friend, and welcome into The People's History, episode 370. It's just silly. How could you get the impression that that was a super cozy email? You know, on the show today, I want to talk about three areas that I think the Fourth Estate has dramatically failed us. And I don't I don't use that lightly. I mean, like cost lives, led to political corruption, let, let just horrible things happen. And most importantly, and it's an area that I harp on a lot these days, it's led to a bankruptcy in trust, and it's. I think I could just give you three examples today of why we have such a fundamental issue with trust in our institutions and how that has led to just make the pandemic so, so much worse. And let's start with the pandemic, because that is the big story, isn't it, still? After all this time, it's still COVID-19. And things aren't looking great. Our governor here in Washington has uh, built... Uh, a COVID camp. It actually looks pretty sweet, like from like an RVer standpoint. I was looking at that going, man, that'd make a good RV park. But I don't know what they're planning to do with it or why they're building it. But it seems like they're kind of setting in for the long haul here. There's also several job openings at the state uh, to help manage and test and all of that around COVID. It seems like the different states, some of them are preparing for the long haul. A lot of money is being invested in that right now property and buildings. And I can't help but sit here and think it's almost the fourth quarter of 2021, which is just mind-blowing, mind-blowing. And we still don't know for sure, with absolute certainty, where the hell this virus came from. Because let's be honest, the only way it's going to happen is some kind of act of Congress, some actual real investigation. And that doesn't seem to be anywhere on anyone's radar. It seems to be the last thing anyone's interested in. Well, except for me and probably you. And I, I think establishing the origins of this thing would go a long way in restoring trust from our health institutions about the virus. And in the process, you know, the people would have more trust in the process. But additionally, I actually pretty firmly believe it would reduce, quote unquote, vaccine hesitancy as well if we knew the origins of the virus. That's just my personal opinion. And I've I've expressed the background on that in the previous episodes. And that's why when The Intercept published this week a a landmine of a document, I mean, just I guess I guess they like to call it a bombshell. I hate the term. I really do. I try to avoid using it, but they call it a bombshell. It was a bombshell of a report. Two reporters at The Intercept published on September 23rd, 2021. A headline that reads, quote, leaked grant proposal details high risk coronavirus research. 
And what the article goes to lay out is mind-blowing. It essentially puts all the pieces out showing EcoHealth Alliance connection to Wuhan lab and their intention to build a coronavirus that looks exactly like COVID-19 does. Now, it doesn't exactly draw the line, and I'm not here to say it does, but the pieces of context that it fills in, I think, are huge, and it really hasn't gotten much attention. I mean, this came out this week, and it hasn't really gotten much attention. And the article starts like this. A grant proposal written by the U.S.-based nonprofit for EcoHealth Alliance submitted in 2018 to the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, or DARPA, provides evidence that the group was working or at least planning to work on several risky areas of research. <laughs> okay, now what kind of research? Well, it goes on to say, among the scientific tasks the group described in its proposal, which was rejected by DARPA, probably because it was too risky, <laughs> was the creation, and this is a quote from the article, was the creation of a full-length infectious clones of bat SARS-related coronaviruses and the insertion of a tiny part of the virus known as a protolytic cleavage site into the bat coronavirus. I'll apologize if I butcher any of the uh, more advanced medical pronunciations. Of particular interest, the article writes, was the type of cleavage site able to interact with furin, an enzyme expressed in human cells. Okay, they got my attention with this because that little furin cleavage area has been one of the big mysteries and debates about COVID-19. Some have suggested different origins. Now, this Intercept article goes on to say, since the genetic code of the coronavirus that caused the pandemic was first sequenced, scientists have puzzled over the furin cleavage site. This strange feature on the spike protein of the virus had never been seen in SARS-related bat coronaviruses. The class to which SARS-CoV-2 the coronavirus that causes the respiratory illness that COVID-19 belongs to. They had not seen this in the wild, they say. This fear and cleavage site enables the virus to more efficiently bind to and release its genetic material into a human cell. And one of the reasons the virus is so easily transmittable and harmful. But scientists are divided over how this particular site wound up on the virus. It's become a major focus of the heated debate over the origins of the pandemic. So this cleavage site is at the center of the origins argument. They go on to write, many who believe that the virus caused the pandemic emerged from a laboratory have pointed out that it's unlikely that the particular sequence of amino acids that make up the cleavage site would have occurred naturally. Those who argue it emerged from a natural spillover say that it could have evolved naturally from a yet undiscovered virus. Further, they argue scientists were unlikely to have engineered the feature. Well... <laughs> The proposal that they submitted to DARPA in 2018, they being EcoHealth Alliance, describes the process of looking for a novel furin cleavage site in bat coronaviruses and inserting it into the spike, into the spike protein of the SARS-related viruses that they would produce in the laboratory. Quote, this is from the proposal, quote, we will introduce appropriate human-specific cleavage sites and evaluate the growth potential and, and there's a few technical terms in here, and HAE cultures, referring to cells found in the lining of the human airway. Specifically in their proposal, they talk about introducing human-specific cleavage sites that particularly impact the lining of the human 
airway path in their proposal in 2018. Oops, I'm getting excited. I bumped my mic there. The Intercept article, that was from their proposal. Now the Intercept article goes on to say, the new proposal, which also described a plan to mass vaccinate bats in caves, does not provide a conclusive evidence that the virus that caused the pandemic emerged from a lab. And virus experts do remain sharply divided on its origins. But several scientists who work on the coronavirus research told The Intercept they felt the proposal shifted the terrain of the debate. Alina Chan was one of them. She's a Boston-based scientist and the co-author of an upcoming book that isn't out yet, but it's called The Vi- uh, Viral, The Search for the Origins of COVID-19. That'll be her new book, Viral, The Search for the Origins of COVID-19. And Chan said this to The Intercept, quote, let's look at the big picture. A novel, saw- a novel SARS coronavirus emerges in Wuhan with a novel cleavage site in it. Now we have evidence that in early 2008, they had pitched inserting a novel cleavage site into a novel SARS-related virus in their lab. Chen went on to say, quote, This definitely tips the scales for me, and I think it should do that for many other scientists, too. In fact, the viruses described in the grant proposal, and this is something the Intercept article touches on, in fact, they say, quote, the viruses described in the grant proposal, which was first posted online by a research group, were, no, were not known pathogens. And the authors of the grant proposal make the case that because the scientists would be using SARS-related bat viruses, as opposed to SARS viruses that are known to infect humans, the research was exempt from gain-of-function concerns. Well, isn't that interesting? So the researchers argued that because they were using novel unknown SARS viruses that weren't yet known to infect humans, because of that, their research isn't technically gain-of-function. And it, it is exempt from gain-of-function concerns. That is a direct quote from their proposal. It is, quote, exempt from gain-of-function concerns, end quote, which is the exact cute little wiggle room that I think Fauci is using in his testimonies. But according to several scientists interviewed by The Intercept, quote, the work describes generating full-length SARS-related coronaviruses that are thought to pose a risk of human spillover. And that's the type of work that people could possibly postulate could have led to a lab-associated origin of SARS-CoV-2. This is according to Jesse Bloom, a professor at Fred Hutchkin's Cancer Research Center and the director of the Bloom Lab. He went on to say, the proposal has an explicit goal to identify bat SARS-related coronaviruses and figure out which ones pose the highest risk to humans. And so that in itself is an admission that their work was dangerous to humans because it was an explicit goal to figure out which coronaviruses pose the highest risk to humans. But then they try to claim other places in their proposal that because these don't yet have known human infectious properties, they're not a risk to humans. The whole thing, I mean, it's no wonder why DARPA passed on it when you read through the Intercept article. There's so much more in here, including DARPA's uh, thoughts about it, according to some emails that were uh, received. The article, I think, is a game changer. Um, I, I mean, you know, I can only do so well reading through this because it's thick, it's complicated. But Sagar over at Breaking Points did a good summary of it, so I'll play that for you. So let's piece it all together. 
In 2018, EcoHealth Alliance, which has deep ties to the Pentagon, offers an ambitious new grant proposal to one of the most advanced defense agencies in the United States to create infectious bat coronaviruses and then somehow inoculate bat populations against the strains that are dangerous to humans that they've already created in a lab. The way they propose to do that happens to have the distinct feature of the coronavirus that we know today outlined within those documents. At the same time, they are then the recipients of tens of millions of dollars in Pentagon money, specifically for the purpose of guarding against the creation of weapons of mass destruction. You follow all that? At the same time, they're proposing creating more infectious diseases. They're supposed to be guarding the United States against more infectious diseases here at home. There's almost a poetic irony in the fact that the Wuhan Institute of Virology itself, which was so deeply tied to EcoHealth Alliance, very likely looks to be the origin itself of this entire outbreak. And they're the ones sending Fauci a thank you email. I mean, you understand why we just have a fundamental trust issue here, because it looks like this thing goes all the way to essentially the top. And this pandemic has ravaged our countries. And I feel like we're still licking open wounds from a thought virus that ravaged us for five years. And I don't say this lightly. It's Russiagate. Russiagate was this wild ass conspiracy that undermined the Trump presidency since he came down that gold escalator. And there is in the background a Durham probe that is investigating the origins of Russiagate and it's amazing what's already been uncovered. And of course, it's not getting any coverage, but it shows us quite clearly that Russia Gate was put together, just as I said on this show years ago, put together by the Clinton campaign and spoon fed to the FBI and then kept alive by a complicit media. But now we actually have the proof. I'm going to play this clip for you. It's a little thick because they're dropping names and they're kind of glossing over details because it's been a few years. But this absolutely shows, without a shadow of a doubt, the entire Russiagate thing was cooked up. And there are still people cashing that check today. And it undermined the entire presidency of Trump. And, and it led to... Well, it led to like Rachel Meadow becoming a huge star and it led to the media collaborating with the CIA on narratives and and propping up people from from Congress who were leakers like Schiff and they all benefited from a scam. Let's bring in Jonathan Turley now, George Washington University law professor, constitutional law expert, and a Fox News contributor. So to your mind, Jonathan, you got a great op-ed today as well. Does this directly implicate the Hillary Clinton campaign and the genesis of the Russia investigation? Oh, it says so directly. This indictment really filled in a lot of blanks. We only learned recently, past in last October, that the head of intelligence uh, for... Um, President Obama briefed him that they had a report that Hillary Clinton was going to create a Russian collusion claim uh, to, to take away from the email scandal. And that was only confirmed last October. We've learned a lot since then, particularly in this indictment, that you had the, the Steele dossier, which American intelligence believed was being used by Russian intelligence to spread disinformation, and that his main wit, uh, source, they believed, was a Russian agent. But then you had this Alpha Bank side, which we didn't know a lot about, and that involves Sussman, 
Both of these sides involve two partners at a firm called Perkins Coie. Now, this is relevant because this is the part of the Russiagate crap where they thought there were some financial ties, and that's how they cooked this up. Where the general counsel of the campaign, Mark Elias, was located. What we've learned in this indictment is that the Clinton people were told that this was falling apart, that there was virtually nothing here to establish this bizarre claim of a communications channel through this bank to the Kremlin. And one of their one of their researchers said, I'm not so sure you want to get this out in public because they'll learn all of the tricks in our bag, which was a really telling statement because of the sort of Nixonian look to all of this. So, so just to quickly sum this up, because it, it is pretty complicated for people who haven't followed it closely. Sussman went to the FBI's general counsel and presented to the general counsel three white papers alleging to show evidence of this connection between the Trump camp or the Trump organization and Alpha Bank. And what's key to understand here is Sussman was on the payroll for the Clinton campaign. He, he told the FBI general counsel, hey, I'm just doing this as a good Samaritan. Want you to know about it. I'm not doing it on behalf of a client. Whereas, in fact, he was doing it on behalf of three clients, one of which, according to the indictment, was the Clinton campaign. That's right, John. And one of the interesting aspects is that Mark Elias was accused of hiding the connection to the Clinton campaign. The Clinton campaign denied that it had any funding or association with the Steele dossier throughout the campaign. Later, it admitted that that was untrue, that it was funded through this, this law firm. And we also now find out that Sussman on this side was also hiding that connection, neither of which came out yeah. before uh, the, uh, the election and, itself. And according to the indictment, Sussman actually billed the Clinton campaign for the meeting he had That's with the right. FBI general counsel. Now, what about the Jake Sullivan connection yeah. here? Because he was pushing the Alpha Bank conspiracy. I want to stop here because I don't really care so much about the banking aspect. The aspect that I care about is the lapdog, lapdog media and the friendlies at the FBI that push this thing. So it, what you should take away from that clip and it really is a shame the coverage of this has been horrible, so I apologize. It's, I don't have great audio on it. But what you should take away from that, from that muddled clip is the FBI had indications very early on if they wanted to dig at all that this thing was shaky. And the Clinton campaign had emails and notes internally showing that they knew this thing was shaky. They later said, all we need is just a good, solid narrative to run with. We can take care of the rest. I now want to play a little bit of Glenn Greenwald for you. He's pretty fired up in this clip, and his audio is not great. This is on an interview, uh, again, with break, uh, Breaking Points. But the reason why I want to play it for you, even though it's a little bit below my threshold of what I'd normally play, is I don't, I don't think I have the ability to convey to you the magnitude of the corruption that this exposes. I don't, I don't think I can properly convey like that the context of that and greenwald does a pretty good job of of making that connection i think there are two aspects to it one is the fact that this is not a republican justice department but a justice department supervised by joe biden's attorney general merrick garland who approved of this indictment and i think that's a good point too this is a biden justice department that approved this indictment from durham uh and uh, I, I think also the other thing to back up here is imagine a world where thinking that that the Russiagate thing was bogus wasn't a, a right wing opinion. 
it sort of becomes one because only Fox covers this and that's easy for all the other outlets to spin it. But this truly it should be a non-party issue. It's a it's a corruption issue. It's a media failure issue. But it has been spun as a right-wing issue, and so then people dismiss it, and they don't have to consider it. And so I would ask you as a thought experiment to just try to consider this as a non-political issue for a moment. I don't know if that's possible, but what, what we expose with this is so much more important than the right-left stuff that everybody likes to get caught up in. Specifically and explicitly stating that the Trump Alpha Bank story that the media spread so aggressively in the mid of, middle of 2016 and even beyond is a fraud, that the FBI concluded very early on that there was no evidence to suggest this was some kind of nefarious or clandestine connection. And yet you have the reporters responsible for having spread it, like Franklin Fuller and Natasha Bertrand and Rachel Maddow and Chris Hayes, who not only have thrived in the wake of doing that, but also who uh, haven't bothered at all to even address this indictment. Rachel Maddow did one segment about it before the indictment even came out when nobody knew what it said, where she kind of maligned the indictment and dismissed it as insignificant. But the parts of it that debunk their reporting is something that they've just completely ignored. They haven't even acknowledged that the story they pushed according to the, the, the Biden administration is completely false. But I think the much more important part of the story is the window it provides into how Clinton operatives worked hand in hand with friendly media outlets. It was, according to the indictment, this Clinton lawyer, Michael Sussman, who worked with these researchers and was told by them that the data wasn't good enough to disseminate the story. And yet he did it anyway. He fed it to Frank Four at Slate, who's now at The Atlantic. Um, and then Hillary Clinton is the one who elevated it by pretending that she learned about it for the first time in Slate, when in fact it was her lawyers working with Fusion GPS, who worked for Hillary Clinton, who contracted uh, Christopher Steele, responsible for concocting the whole story. And the worst part might be that we learned for the first time that Franklin Ford took his marching orders from G Fusion GPS. They were the one who said, okay, Frank, it's time to get moving, like kind of snapping their fingers and then not only did he obey, but he sent them the draft of his story to get approval from the Clinton operatives who were manufacturing and engineering the entire thing. So you get a, a view into how this journalistic corruption drove the scammier parts of Russiagate for so long. And then you get Congress critters like Schiff that just leak and feed crap to the media and they ran with it and they ran with it for years. And at the same time, some some podunk podcaster was able to see through all of that and call it exactly as it has now been laid out in an indictment by the Joe Biden Justice Department. If you go back to the unfiltered catalog, that is exactly what I said was happening at the time. All of it. Now, how the hell is that? Am I some sort of super genius? No. I clearly was looking at it with a different set of priorities. Our corporate media overloads that lords that like to just manufacture consent go about running with all this stuff. Then at the same time, telling us that they are the guardians of reality and that that CNN and those like them are reality based media. And people like me are crazy right wing misinformation outlets. Yet he lays out one of these, you know, the, 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 exactly what you're describing. How it could all happen in 2024. It is 
This is Brian Seltzerwater, and he is on CNN's Reliable Sources, and he's their quote-unquote media watchdog. It is quite unnerving. And and you say there's some cowards out there that don't want to talk about it. What do folks in the reality-based media do in the coming weeks? What's your advice for the press corps? Oh, yeah. Give us some advice. And he's interviewing this author who just wrote a book that says right-wing media is a safe space for liars. Um, and I, I don't follow it, so I don't know if it was a book. I, don't, I, I honestly don't even know if it was a tweet. But what I love is seltzer water here claiming that people like CNN are re- now reality-based media. This is the new little term they're going out there. They don't want to talk about it. What do folks in the reality-based media do in the coming weeks? What's your advice for the press corps? I mean, my, my my advice for the press corps is to make to, is to is to drop the, the the fair and balanced about the one party and the other party. Oh yeah, that's what we need. We need the media to be more un more biased, more unbalanced. That's what we need. You do in the coming weeks. What's your advice for the press corps? I mean, my my, my advice for the press corps is to make to, is to is to drop the, the the fair and balanced about the one party and the other party. Who cares about the parties, right? The parties aren't really the story. The story is whether we have a democracy or not. And they have to, they have to drop the balance coverage to save the democracy. Don't you understand? So what are they doing here? Why, why do they go on and on about how the sky is red and anybody who says it's blue is absolutely a crazy right wing conspiracy theorist who votes Trump and is anti-vax? The sky is red. What's wrong with you? The sky is red. What's wrong with you? Oh, yes. Now the sky is blue. Why didn't you think it was blue all along? I mean, this is literally how it has been with them. And they have turned this up to 11. I mean, I remember when they brought on disgraced um, director of intelligence uh, Clapper, you know, the liar who, who said that the NSA wasn't spying on the American public. So they bring on. These people who either got us into the Iraq war or have lied to Congress and they they treat them as authority people and they have them come on and just vaguely state things that they wanted to hear and they ran with it. Obama. So, Director, a bunch of questions from this. Let me just start with this. How much does the source matter, right? So you hear the story of this laptop. We don't know a lot. We do know that the the way that this information is getting out is through Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani. How much uh, does the source matter here? So this is really what it comes to next. So first we have the issue with COVID and how we're not really talking about the real issues around the virus and where it came from. Then we have this entire gaslighting event around Russiagate. Then we had them tell us, just like the issue with Trump and Russia, the Hunter Biden laptop is also Russian misinformation. All the hallmarks. Well, source matters a lot and, uh, and the timing matters a lot, I think. And to me, this is uh, just classic uh, textbook uh, Soviet-Russian uh, tradecraft at work. Uh, the Russians have analyzed the target. They understand that the president and his enablers uh, crave uh, dirt on Vice President Biden, whether it's real or contrived, it doesn't matter to them. And so all of a sudden, two, two and a half weeks before the election, uh, this laptop appears somehow uh, without and uh, emails on it without any metadata, uh, it just it's all very curious. But the, so here you have uh, a willing target and the Russians who are very sophisticated about how to exploit a, a, a willing target. And uh, to me, that's what's at work here. Yeah, of course, it's classic Russian tradecraft. Well, except for that's all crap. And this is my third point. 
now a a political reporter, a, a guy that might actually be almost half my age, actually, just a, a, almost a kid, just barely a man, a political reporter went out and did the hard work and verified the Hunter Biden emails on the laptop. It turns out he found the recipients and asked them if they're real. And they said yes. Wow. Some Russian tradecraft there. Two topics really quick. First, the president has said, and you have tweeted, that allegations of wrongdoing based on files pulled from Hunter Biden's laptop are Russian disinformation. There is a new book by a political reporter that finds some of the files on there are genuine. Is the White House still going with Russian disinformation? This is a question being asked, of course, to Jen Psaki, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary. I think it's broadly known and widely known, Peter, that there was a broad range of Russian disinformation back in 2020. Okay, moving on to the border. Following, <laughs> yeah, yep, they're still going with it. So, how did how did this political reporter pull it off? Importantly, I spoke to someone who, for a time, had some independent access to Hunter Biden's emails. They say he did receive uh, an email from a Ukrainian businessman thanking him for the chance to meet his father, and that he did receive an email from a business partner laying out the proposed equity structure for a, a venture with some Chinese business executives that included the line, 10 held held by H for the big guy. Mm. Uh, those were the lines that were at this, sort of at the center of the controversy last, last October, the emails that were initially published by the New York Post. Uh, and I was also able to corroborate some other emails that didn't really make the news that just sort of show that there's other genuine material here. I spoke to a couple of people who corresponded with Hunter Biden in 2018 and 2019. They said, yep, those messages are, are messages I did exchange with him. Uh, and then I obtained some emails from a, a Swedish government agency. For a while, Hunter Biden had an office uh, in the complex on K Street that, that houses the Swedish embassy. So uh, the Swedish government was essentially his landlord. Uh, they released to me, you know, a half dozen or a dozen email exchanges, uh, and those match emails in the cache. So what I can say is that some of this, some of this material, at least, is genuine. The media ran cover during the election. They ran cover for Biden, hid this thing up, claimed it was Russian tradecraft. The reality-based media told us it was Russian tradecraft. And they didn't run with the story because it was uh, Russian misinformation. And they didn't even bother to check into the emails to verify them. And here's why it matters even more. Because a lot of those emails implicated Joe Biden as being involved with the sweet, sweet hookup. He was the big guy. And now a new set of emails have come out, not from the laptop, but a different set of emails. The Hill does their very, very best to try and cover it. And they've got at least good information you should hear. Kim, what's on your radar? Well, another day, another Hunter Biden bombshell. This time, Business Insider published two emails discussing Hunter Biden's $2 million lobbying fee to help unfreeze $15 billion in assets for Libya. Now, who would Hunter be lobbying? His dad, of course, who at the time of the emails was the sitting vice president. In the emails obtained by, business, by Insider, business contacts of Hunter Biden's discussed the pros and cons of retaining Hunter's services. The cons were the obvious. Hunter Biden is a mess type. They cited him being an alcoholic, a drug addict who chases low-class hookers, and him being a financial disaster. But the pros? Well, they cited him being the chairman of the UN World Food Program. And one would guess this is a plus because this means he would have access to numerous heads of state. They also noted that his business partner is John Kerry's son, who was secretary of state at the time, that he has access to the highest levels of people in China. I love that uh, John Kerry's son is involved. 
there's probably a nice little uh, triangle of corruption there with some of those prominent Democrats, just like there would be on the right, of course. But uh, haven't heard that one mentioned a lot. And of course, the biggest positive of retaining Hunter Biden, that he's Joe Biden's son, the sitting vice president at the time holding the Libya file. Reportedly, nothing ever came of this. Hunter wasn't fired, wasn't hired, and this sweet gig of lobbying his father to unfreeze Libyan assets never came to pass. But this is just another story in the line of underreported stories about Hunter, Hunter Biden peddling access to his father. But I want us to take a moment here to look at the real story that's unfolding. The Hunter Biden story isn't actually about Hunter Biden. It's about Joe Biden and whether or not a father who loves his son would desperately do anything to help him. And it's about the activist media establishment who continually refuses to give all the pertinent information so we can make up our own minds. I think you mean reality-based media? But that's actually why I completely believe these Biden, Hunter Biden stories. I could see Joe wanted to help his boy out. And it's just a nice, tidy little family business. Paying artwork and diamonds. It's all off the books. You can sell access to the big guy. You get your boy some honest work, as far as D.C. is concerned. But there you have it, and it matters. The media lied to us during an election about corruption in our president's family. It's right there. And a political a political reporter was able to confirm the emails, and then Business Insider got another set of emails that show you was selling access to his dad. Russiagate. Russiagate undermined the presidency, was used as an excuse for unprecedented investigations and expenses in those investigations and rampant gaslighting of the American people and spinning up the political situation into a a, a quite panic because people were actually worried he was a Russian agent, and many, many still are. The ramifications of Russiagate continue on. And then our complete and inability to have a frank and honest conversation around COVID and the origins of it. Three things that have come out in the last week that show how screwed up this all is. But your unfiltered show is tracking it, calling it, and I think more often than not, getting it right. And when we get it wrong, I'll come back on. I'll own it. You can keep me honest at unfiltered.show slash discord. Thanks for joining me. See you right back here soon. No, 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 no,